King Jesus, but affords that victory for us. Uh, Neil Anderson wisely writes, so why do we struggle to gain that which is already ours in Christ Jesus? We just need to appropriate in faith those great victory truths. Take your Bibles and let's look to Acts chapter 11 today. Acts chapter 11. I want to go in chapter 11 and then 13. Last week we were talking about the the grandeur of an individual that God works through who just uh, yields himself or herself obediently, that regardless of what you think can transpire, if you will present yourself obedient to God, he can and will use you for his grand work of his kingdom. Today I want to show you an example of a church who chose to be that kind of church, to be a global-minded church, and God used them in amazing ways to really share his gospel in a global sense, the first of which was done. Next Sunday, if God gives me the, the ability to do so, I want to share with you an individual uh, that comes from this church. His name is Barnabas, who really is a, an unsung hero of the global gospel that is moving in the first century. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to share that with you. Let's look in chapter 11, beginning of verse 19. Read along in your Bibles, if you will. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, before I get into the core of the text, I, I want to zoom in on the latter part of it because I think it helps establish for us some background. That certainly the persecution of the church was, was uh, real in this first century movement. They were, if you didn't scatter, then you were going to be killed. Barnabas recognized that there was a great movement of the gospel of grace there in Antioch. And he chose to go uh, to the region of the Tarsus Mountains, which are really into the, the Turkish area. And he chose to seek after Saul there. He literally looks for him. And in looking for him, he, he draws attention to what God is doing in Antioch. And he invites Saul to be there in partnership in the gospel. If you remember, Saul is one of those individuals that just uh, has come to faith in Christ. He was on his way to persecute Christians there in Damascus. And on the way, God intercepted him with 
with the uh, Messiah, and, and Saul came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. It's in that place that Saul, who has a rich background in the Old Testament scriptures, begins to collide with this new understanding that he has of Jesus the Messiah. So Saul, who is Jewish, becomes Messianic, and then he believes that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He's got this real rich history, though, of his background of understanding the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, he's a student under Gamaliel, who is one of the great rabbis of the Old Testament scriptures. And now he begins to take that which is fashioned for him in the Old Testament perspective, Jewish perspective, and he lets that collide with who he knows Jesus Christ is the Messiah to be. And with that truth comes this real need for the church at Antioch to understand the depth of scripture that Paul, uh, then Saul, has with Barnabas. And so he's brought him here for a year of teaching. All of this took place right after the death of Stephen. Remember, Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And amongst that persecution that pursued out after Stephen's death came a real movement of the congregation there in Jerusalem. Many of those Christians, fearing for their own lives, scattered now, I'm not much of a um, first century uh, historian, but I, I know enough to get me in trouble. Here's what I know. Here's Jerusalem, where much of the, the persistent persecution took place. And when that happened, many of those Christians flooded up north. Now, Tyre and Sidon are just to the north and to the west of Damascus. You could get on a ship in those port cities of Tyre and Sidon, and you could actually go over to Cyprus or go all the way west into the Mediterranean and end up in Crete. From either of those two islands, or actually from Tyre and Sidon itself on ship, you could actually flood into the area of Turkey and what is now Europe, the European areas. Now, when this was occurring, Christians went all over that region, but a large deposit of them were right here in the area of, of Syria. This is the capital of Syria. It's Antioch. In, in that region, it was um, a metropolitan area. It was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. It had been in establishment for a long time, about 300 years before the birth of Christ. In that region, was known, it was known for its Greek culture. It was steeped in Greek culture, even though it had a, a cosmopolitan feel to it because you had a lot of Syrians living there and a lot of Jewish people living there as well. It's about 15 miles inlet of the Mediterranean, so you could have the coastal trade coming in. A lot of the road structures of the Roman Empire were intersecting there in Antioch, so it became a real a traversed area for trade. It was a hub for economy, and it was a hub for political movement as well. But also in that region, which was known for sports, was a temple to the goddess of, of uh, Daphne, who was one of the lovers said to be of Apollos. The temple for Daphne was right in the middle of a 10-mile garden. Now, at my house, we have some small gardens. I have one that's, I don't know, maybe the size of that area combined. And I can tell you, it works me like a dog every single day. Can you imagine a 10-mile garden? That's what was happening there in Antioch. But it's not just about the gardens and all of its lushness. It's meant to, to uh, communicate the lush fertility of the goddesses. In fact, prostitutes were very much rampant through that garden. 
and real lustful worship was taking place. So here you have the Roman Empire, third largest city. You have idolatry that has really surfaced and raised itself to real pagan living. You have the intersections and the coming and going of all kinds of people at all times. God said, that's where I want my church. That's where I want a global-minded church. Now, it doesn't make sense to us. That seems too far gone. But God's ways are very different from our ways and ours from His. And in His sovereignty, He said, that's where I want a global-minded church. So he begins with the persecution of the saints that are on the move. He begins to coagulate them right there in that epicenter of paganism and pulls them together to be globally minded. Now the enemy thought in the midst of all this persecution that this fire that was raging for the gospel in Jerusalem, that if he kicked it and scattered it in persecution, that it would all die down, that those embers would just die down in their scattered state. What he didn't recognize is that kicking the gospel embers from the heart of Jerusalem actually kicked them into sagebrush fields, and they ignited a wildfire all throughout the Phoenician region and up into Turkey and over into Europe and soon to be to even take over the area of Italy. This was a movement of the Spirit of God. That God was doing something bigger, grander, more beyond what the individuals could see was happening right in front of them. The gospel had been moving towards the Gentiles. Peter had been up at the home of Simon the Tanner. He was minding his own business on the upper area. It was the cooler place for him to be there at Joppa as the winds from the sea would come across. He's in a real state of prayer and worship. And he hears the Holy Spirit through a vision telling him that there would be some coming to knock on the door there and to be ready for them and to respond obediently by going with them. What he did not know is that the Holy Spirit was inviting a man by the name of Cornelius to understand the gospel and invite his family and friends into his home. And when Peter would arrive, they would all be there waiting with anticipation what God's word would be to them. At that moment, the gate of the gospel comes ajar for the Gentiles. But what is about to happen in Antioch is a kicking wide open of the gate and a flooding of Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of God because they are going to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, up until this point, it has not been that way. Did you pick up on the beginning of this, this, this chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, about how they were monoculture and their expression of the gospel? Read it again. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks, the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now before this point, those who had been sharing the gospel had only been sharing it to Jews so that Jews would become messianic, that they would recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But now here's two men, one from Cyprus, one from Cyrene, at least two men, 
who are coming into the region and their purpose is to let the gospel be known among the Gentiles, among those who need to know that Jesus is the King, the Savior of all the world. Undoubtedly, they were emphatic about making the name of Jesus known. By the way, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that has always been the mantra of God, to make His name known among the nations. That's what you and I pick up on. This is the message of God, to make the name of God known among the nations. What do we do? We make the name of Christ known among the nations. Now, here's two guys, one from Cyprus, that island nation, and the other from Serene, which is on the northern coast of of Africa. One of them travels a thousand miles to make the name of God known among the nations. And we don't even have their names. How about that? I think what the incredible truth is, they could care less that you know about their name. What they want you to know is the name of the Savior of all the world. They want you to know the name of King Jesus. So here, Luke, who is known as a writer to be very detailed, doesn't even share the name of these two guys. (laughs) I imagine it's going to be written on many of the halls of heaven as a testimony of their their obedient response to the Lord Jesus. So, the hand of the Lord is powerfully moving in Antioch. And these witnesses are messianic, no doubt, but they are telling the Gentiles how to be saved. And the result is really astounding. The Bible says the result is that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, when the Bible uses a, an open-ended expression like a great number, where we don't can't put our finger to that number on the on the page, what that means is there was too many to count at the time. A great number of people who believed turned to the Lord. And I have to ask, Lord, when can we see that? When can we experience a great number of people? When can we have another Sunday invitation where the aisles are not empty, but instead they are full because a great number of people are believing and turning to you? When can we see a flood of revival? When can we see an evangelistic move like the Great Awakening? When can we see that, Lord? And why do we not see that? What's different then that is... Not the same as what we see now. Well, I know this, that the issue is not with the power of the Word of God. That the Word of God is as powerful today as it was when it was written. It's a living Word. It's timeless. It's forever the same. The issue is not with the transformational power of the Word of God. I've seen it transform individuals, and I've seen it transform or beginning to transform communities as well. It is sharp as a two-edged sword, the Bible says. The issue is not with the commission of God. He has not retracted the great commission. It is still very much in effect. And he said he would be with us as we are commissioned to the end of the age. It's still in effect. The issue is not with the church itself. The church is the body of Christ. It is the the means, the mouth, the eyes, the ears, the hands, the feet of Jesus. That hasn't changed. What is issue of issue is the church is disobedient. She's disobedient in that she builds up her own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And she's disobedient in that she is not without fear to advance the kingdom of God. How are people going to ever call upon the name of Jesus unless they believe? And how will they ever believe unless they hear? And how will they ever hear unless somebody tell them? Paul is an emphatic writer about that. That it's our role to do that. It's God's role to bring about the results. 
One of the greatest issues of squelching the gospel from being shared and the transformation being experienced by others is not a lack of power from the word or the transformation of the word or the power of the commission. It's the fear of God's people. It's God's people worried about man rather than worrying about God. The indifference is commonly caused by a, a watering down of the gospel when we fear what the, the man is going to say to us will water down the gospel, will make it more about love and grace without being a platform of judgment. Listen, when you water down the gospel, there's no reason for you to share it. We're, we're in this notion today in Christendom that what God wants us to communicate, we think, is love and grace. Listen, that is not how this thing starts. In every gospel proclamation of the scripture, it is always God's judgment. He is holy and you're not. And you are not repairable to that. And then you usher in the gospel. The good news is that God's made a way. And his son is the way. And he was altogether holy and altogether righteous. He alone is the perfect Lamb of God who could take away your sins and put in you His righteousness and thereby present you holy, faultless, and blameless to God. When you water down the truth with smiley expressions and words, grace and love, then you have withdrawn the power of the gospel. And when you fear man more than you fear God, you have negated the role of the gospel in your life. Listen, I know it's tough for a lot of people, but it, it's not tougher for us than it was those first century Jews who were coming to Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they talk about this great persecution. In the midst of the persecution, they write, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So now they're not praying, Oh God, stop their threats. Stop the mouth of the enemy. Instead, what they're doing is praying, God, please give us boldness that we may be able to share your truth. The power of God is never the issue. He will powerfully move through His Word to transform lives, which is why it's imperative that we share the Word with all people. Luke tells us that revival is breaking out in Antioch. In that, the gospel message is like giving water to somebody that's parched in the desert or giving bread to somebody who is deeply hungry. These Gentiles were like that. It was like water to refresh them or bread to satisfy them. How so, Randy? Because the Gentiles were tired and they were weary from their religion and their superstitions that meant nothing after all. They were under the heavy burden of God's judgment and they wanted desperately to get out from under that weight. They were confused with the, the deadness of their gods and the debauchery that they were experiencing around worship. And so when they heard the gospel, the word of truth, it was like water to them in their parched soul and it was like food to their hungry soul. And upon hearing it, many turned to God because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, upon hearing that report, chapter eleven twenty two says, the report come, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. I wish that was written differently right there. 
I wish that they could just talk about rejoicing and dancing and celebrating in that the gospel was now flourishing in Antioch and that they were longing to go there and commit themselves to the work of Jesus there in Antioch. But instead what they do is say, hey Barnabas, go check that out. I'm not so sure about that. That's different. What we've come to find out is that the church in Jerusalem had too many traditions and too many perceived notions about what the gospel was to even see something fresh and new that God was doing himself. They needed to understand that not just because evangelism was taking place in Caesarea and Antioch, because it wasn't their idea doesn't mean that it wasn't the idea of God. That just because they didn't, it didn't fit into their scope of ministry, it, it limited the scope of ministry of God. Meadowbrook, that's all over us. That doesn't make sense. That's not how I know God to work. Or God's not been working that way in the past. Or I don't know if God would be doing that. We better go check that out. Now, I'm all for checking things out and testing the Spirit. The Bible tells us about that. But what I'm really inclined to do is see God at work and say, God, I want to go there and I want to be there and I'll be right there in the midst of your work. That's what I'm learning for. So here, this church in Antioch is beginning to be formed up. They become a mighty church, a global-minded church. Antioch was a church who had far-reaching effect for the gospel of God. It was the first church to really have a global focus. God used them to reach the communities and nations for himself. This is the kind of church that Meadowbrook is called to be. I want you to see the example of this. Go to chapter 13, the first five verses, and then I'm going to share about 10 minutes and we're done. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, also called Niger, Lucius the Serene, Manaean, member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now here's a church that is formed by persecuted saints flooding up through Phoenicia and into Syria and locating right there in Antioch by the work of the Holy Spirit. They are receiving the gospel, the good news. And Barnabas has gone to seek after Saul that he might come and for one year invest in them the word of God. Now, they don't know it, but God has a plan that this will be a global church. That they will have global sight. That they wouldn't see themselves in four walls. They would see themselves unto the four corners of the earth. And so this deposit that has been going on for a year has been very intentional. And now we're reading in chapter 13 that there were prophets and teachers there. And then we get a listing of them, the five of them. Now, the way the structure of the church was set up by the Holy Spirit is that it was led at this time by prophets and teachers. The apostles were leading the church in Jerusalem, but they were not going to be the leaders throughout the world because there was... Not enough of them. 
So God is migrating the leadership. It's now going to be led by prophets and teachers. And after the apostolic period, you see that the, the prophets are going to diminish and the elders and pastors are going to be raised up. And it will soon be led by teachers and pastors and elders. All right, what this is, these five people, what Luke is telling us is that they were teachers and prophets. A prophet had a revelation of God and a teacher taught the instruction of the word of God. What he's saying to us there is at the core of it all, at the beginning of it all, was the word of God. Now I'm all for the church doing a lot of things, but if it's not first and primarily based on the word of God, it is wasting time and energy. You and I must be people of the Word of God. If we're anything, we are treasuring this Word. It becomes the way we think. We see all things in the world with this filter lens. What does God say about it? How does it fit into God's Word? We call that a biblical worldview. Now, if you're waiting for me to teach you that biblical worldview, you are far short from God's glory. God wants you to be a learner. He has made you to be a priest yourself that you might hear from him through his word by the teaching of his spirit. He wants you to engage in this word, to be in this word daily, to meditate on it day and night so that it becomes a rich deposit in you. What we do here is what I consider to be the huddle. The play doesn't happen in the huddle. We get the plan together in the huddle, and then we break from here, and all the action goes out there on the fields, right? So we're here as a huddle today to gather together to collectively hear from the Holy Spirit himself that when we leave this place, all the action takes place out there on the field, and we go pressing to the goal. It's the prize of the upper call of Christ in us. But none of that will make any effort whatsoever for the kingdom of God if we're not entrenched in the word. If Meadowbrook is going to be a global-minded church, we have to be a biblical central church. Can I just say there are doctrinal sissies all around? And you and I have to toughen up. The Bible is difficult. And the Spirit of God made it that way. You and I have to toughen up in our study of it, in our meditation about it, in our prayers, that God by His Spirit would give us insight and understanding. And He will answer that. He will give it to you. It's a treasure not to be cast before swine. Be people of the Word of God. Now, if we're going to be a global-minded church, which Antioch is, we also have to be a diverse church. Of the list of people here, listen to the diversity. First of all, you have Barnabas, who is a Jewish man, Levite by tribe, who is actually from Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is like the Monaco of the day. It's one of those very wealthy places. It's the hub of metropolitan life. And for a Levite to own property, number one, as God said, don't do. For him to own property outside the promised land, number two, on the island of Cyprus, meant that Barnabas was a wealthy man. And at one time in his life, he wasn't given to the things of God. Now, he's been transformed. He's a Jew. Manaean 
is one of those guys that lives in the, with the Tetrarch, or lived, grew up with the Tetrarch Herod. It's said that he is buddies with the family, a son, like that of a son of the Tetrarch. You have uh, Lucius, who is a Cyrenian off the northern coast of Africa, more than likely African-American descent, black. You have, uh, let me get to my notes here real quick. Oh, yeah, Simeon. His name is also Niger. It means black. My guess is that he was black, black. I got some real friends that are dark black. I've been in the, the regions of the world where they rarely see white people and the kids go off running because they've been told the white people will eat you. You better stay away from them. They go screaming, running off. Others will come up to me wanting to touch my skin because it's so pale in comparison. Here's the bottom line. If you're going to be a global church, you're going to have to be a diverse church. If you're going to reach the nations, you better have the nations represented in your church. All right, let me just be real blunt about it. We are way too white in this church. We need olive color. We need black color. We need red color. We need all the colors of the world. If we're going to reach all the people of the world, if we're going to be a diverse church to reach the diversity of the world, we better be representing the diversity. It's not just about color of skin, is it? In this list, you've got rich people, you've got poor people. You've got people in the know, and you've got people that are ostracized like Saul. And what's cool about that is it gives every one of them a different platform of influence. Because they were all white, or olive color in their case. And they were all of the same socioeconomic class then all their influence is the same. But because God is pulling together a global-minded church to commission among the nations, He brings diversity to that church, and on every level there is influence. For Menaean, there's this influence. For Barnabas, there's this influence. For Lucius, there's this influence. God is perfect at that. Don't ever... Let the enemy trick you to think that just because you have or don't have or you're this color or that color or you've got this education or you don't have that education, don't ever let him think through you that you're not who God wants you to be. Listen, God has you right where he wants you to be because there is a level of influence that you have that is unique to everybody else in this room. God knows exactly what he's doing. Diversity. Prayed in the first service. I'll do it again in this service. God, make us multicolored. Let's pause and pray. In this moment, Lord, I sense from your spirit, by your word, just to ask you for that. You said often we have not because we ask not. I pray for diversity among the faith family known as Meadowbrook. I pray that the skin colors would be wide and varied. I pray that the economics would be so varied. I pray the education level and the experiences would be so diverse. 
and that because of your perfection in bringing parts to make a whole of the body, that you would make us to be a global church to go among the global gospel work. Please, God, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. The third thing that I see here is that they were made to worship, and they were doing that, and they were pressing in to spiritual disciplines. It was a priority for them. I mean, it was while they were praying that the Spirit of God spoke to them. Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. And it was in the midst of that praying at another level, they began to fast. And in that, they knew with certainty that the Holy Spirit was calling Saul and Barnabas to begin this mission journey. At the core of who we are, we are a people of God. Among the faith family, we must be diverse. And then as our expression to God is worship, our disciplines are important as well. When's the last time that you fasted? Fasting is a suppression of the flesh in order to lift the things of the Spirit. It's saying, God, nothing else matters in comparison to you. Even my innate desire for food, which I have to have to survive, I forego that and for a period do away with that to elevate that you are the most that I need. There are times in the scripture where the example is given to us where we're seeking after the things of God and we're wanting to know what God's will and way is and we go through a season of fasting for that, suppressing the flesh that the spirit truths might elevate. That's where they were. They took worship and it was part of who they were, not just songs, not just gathering together, but it was their life, a life of worship, and they lived with spiritual discipline. In other words, they kept their flesh subjected to the Spirit. Somehow, some way, we've flipped that around and it doesn't work. And then... Beyond this worship and the spiritual discipline, they were obedient to the instruction of the Holy Spirit. They moved quickly to respond. God let them know what He was doing. He was calling two men aside, and they quickly moved to set them apart, laid hands on them, which is a sign of commissioning. We believe that God has called you. We anoint you for this work and commission you out. There's one more. It's the fifth point of the scripture, and that is they were seeking to build God's kingdom and not their own. If you're going to be a global-minded church, you're going to have to forego this modern Christendom that's in the West today. You're going to have to just do away with all that. How many did you have? How many services you running? How are things going? You're going to have to push all that aside. And you're going to have to stop broadcasting what God's doing in these four walls and start looking what God wants to be done outside the four walls. I usually don't go to conventions where preachers are because I don't like it. So what y'all running in Gadsden? I don't like it. 
somehow, some way, we have built up the idea that success is based on how many people we get in the walls of the church. Jesus never did that. Jesus is way more interested in how many people we send out from the walls of the church. Never has anybody asked me, so how many missionaries you sent out? How many pastors have you raised up? Not a single person. But by the dozens upon dozens. So how many are you running? We got it all wrong. And if we're going to be a global-minded church, we have to start basing success on how many people go out. Now, that'll get an amen from a good congregation. But when I start talking about your life group, you'll clam up. See, success is not based on how many people your life group can get in on Sunday morning. Success in the way of God is how many life groups are spinning out of yours. Well, now, preacher, you can talk that way to anybody else, but not mine. You better leave ours alone. You want to take our teacher out and let him start something new? That's global-mindedness. That's kingdom-mindedness. We're not building our own kingdom. We're not building Meadowbrook. We're building the kingdom of God. You want to take our church leaders and commission them out to go other places? Yeah. Yeah, because in the grand scheme of things, we're rewarded for all eternity for that. That's a pretty good deal. Church, if we're going to be global, we've got to be thinking globally. And I know it's crazy sounding, but I believe that God's called us, a little old church in Gadsden, Alabama, to have a global impact. I really believe that. And I believe He's called you and me to be primary players in that. I really, I don't discount a single one of us. Why? Because I believe in the power of God. All he's looking for is an obedient response from you, from me, us individually and collectively as a church. And then watch what he'll do. Watch what he'll do. Here we are a couple of thousand years talking about a church that does that. Anybody going to be talking about Meadowbrook 25 years from now? If we're obedient and we start to see things differently than everybody else, that will be a multi-generational church that will have impact globally. That's what we're called to. So I'm praying that God would begin birthing a spirit of that obedience in us. And it would flourish. So help us, God. Please. You know our flesh is weak. God, strengthen our spirit through worship and spiritual discipline. You know, our thinking is off, so please, God, infuse your word into our thinking. Let it be life to us. Please, Lord, we have a tendency to focus inward. Help us to cast our vision outside. And even though traditions and ways and means are are very routine to us, God, let us see something fresh and new that you're doing that can only be explained by you. Let us see wide. 
Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see and open our heart to truths that you choose to share. And may it all be unto the glory of our great God and Savior, King Jesus, whose name is to be known among the nations and whose body, the church at Meadowbrook, is called to share it. Find us faithful, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand, if you will. Move in response to the Spirit of God, if you will do so. Just trusting in God that He will do what He can do. Open your heart to Him. Open your eyes to Him. See what God will do. We're here, ready to pray for you and encourage you as you're making decisions for Christ today. You come as God is leading. Some from hell. 